Welcome to the Minnesotan Podcast. On today's podcast, we have David Maley, who sits down with us and talks about his lone distinction, a claim to fame. He's the only Minnesota high school hockey player to have won a state high school championship, an NCAA title, and a Stanley Cup. We'll talk about that. What might be more interesting for our listeners is life after 1986 uh, and all the trials and tribulations of being a pro hockey player, a professional uh, announcer, as well as a business owner. It should be a great show. Today's show is sponsored by the Minnesotan. If you've seen their hat collection, the Minnesotan, it's awesome. Nothing compares to to it. You can get a St. Paul Vulcans hat, a Ham's beer hat, St. St. Mary's Point Ice Arena hat, and the clothing there is unbelievable. If you want to put a dent into your Christmas list this weekend, take home a free hat by spending $100 or more now through Sat- Small Business Saturday or in-store. Visit them in White Bear Lake or online at theminnesotan.com. No online code required. Hope you enjoy today's show. Love is a burning thing And it makes a fiery ring Bound by wild desire I fell into a ring of fire Well, good afternoon, Mr. Bailey. How are you doing today? Awesome, Tony. Thank you. (laughs) This is going to be a fun show. You and I have sat down twice, once for lunch a few weeks ago and again today, and the conversations just go all over the place, and I'm expecting even more enjoyment for our listeners to actually hear some of it. That's true. We That was almost a three-hour lunch, wasn't it? It might have been more than that, but you know, you, uh, you and I have a, a, good, <laughs> a good vibe just out of the gate, and I'm excited to hear where this thing goes. Uh, your story is pretty remarkable. We talk in the in the preview about the three titles. We'll get to that in a little bit. But it wasn't your standard uh, trip. I mean, you've had a pretty cool ride and met so many great people. Whether they were hockey people, their coaches, parents, it's been it's been pretty cool to listen to. And uh, it all started in Beaver Dam, Wisconsin. You were born there. You come from a really big family. How many in your family? Well, I, uh, three older sisters and two younger brothers. Beaver Dam was the birthplace, but we moved to uh, Cedarburg when I was, uh, you know, just a baby. And that's just north of north of Milwaukee. Yeah, about forty-five miles north of Milwaukee. Now, here's the fun part. I mean, uh, the, getting to know you's been a <laughs> lot of fun. But I did a lot of research on you a little before, and one of your sisters uh, went to University of Southern California, married a football player, and now yep. you have a net who is Ricky Ellison. Is that his name? Yep, that was his name. And Ricky Ellison played. I think he was on the 49ers where they won the Super Bowls. Yeah, he so has did you three live Super through Bowl. that whole deal too? You're watching the Super. Bowls. I did. It <laughs> was yeah. that's crazy. He was a national champion uh, and a Rose Bowl champion too, as well at SC with you know Ronnie Lott and right White. I mean, he you know Anthony Munoz was there. He had a, there was an incredible team. Yeah, so you got that, and then his one of his sons, Rhett, Rhett played for the Vikings, about an eight year pro career as well. Yeah, he married a gal from Minnetonka, Reina, and they have two beautiful kids and. And uh, actually, his uh, wife, Raina's brother, lives, I mean, literally right down the street from me uh, in Shorewood. Yeah, okay. And yeah. you now live here in yeah, the Minnetonka area, right? Yeah, Excelsior. Are your kids Minnetonka schools? 
They're skippers. Skippers. Unfortunately, I mean, <laughs> the way it is. And what are their names? They're boys, right? Uh, Ryan and Shay. And they don't play athletics. No, they do. They do a little bit. They played baseball growing up. Yeah. Actually, Ryan was a really good baseball player. We moved here um, almost, it was two years ago in September, so this will be our third winter. He just, he had Oscar Slotis at his knees pretty bad. He oh, was yeah. growing. He just didn't want to play. And then the uh, next year came around, he still didn't want to play. So they're they're both uh, musicians, Ryan uh, probably more so than Shay. And I don't know if living in Silicon Valley as long as I did, he really got into high tech, uh, Ryan did, and has built the last three computers himself. And uh, But he's really into skateboarding right now. Oh, that's, that's cool. Whole, he did a little bit in, in uh, the Bay Area in San Jose. Um, but way more so here. He goes to the Chanhassen Skate Park, and he's doing these flips, and, I mean, he loves it. He's does, he does that every day. I mean, he's, he's bummed because the winter is coming. So After our lunch, um, I got home. I was telling my wife about meeting you and all these things, and and the first thing she says, oh, do his kids play hockey? You know, because a lot yeah. of people want to meet me because of youth hockey. I'm like, no, he has this product that he's interested in talking about with me. But we didn't really talk about his kids and playing hockey. He goes, wow, that's pretty impressive. Because just about everybody whose kids play hockey in Minnesota, their kids also play hockey. And she's always admires people that their kids don't necessarily take the same path. Yeah, you know, we tried everything with our kids. I think like most parents do, they want to um, give their kids a chance to participate in what they want at the time. My youngest kid, Shay, I mean, he tried everything. Oh, he, he was the best at quitting of anyone that I know. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so they did play roller hockey a bit. Um, they did play some ice. And we, you know, open skated a lot. Same with my daughter, Michaela, um, when she was younger. She didn't like the smell of hockey gear. She was yeah. really more of a, uh, you know, she liked the, her dolls and things like that. But she did try it. Uh, and I'll never forget the first time she tried it. We put all the gear on her, and she started to sweat and freaked out. Really? Was, yeah. And so, you know, everybody's got their own. You know, I would never push anything on any of my kids. My dad didn't. My mom didn't. So, um, you know, just try to expose them to, you know. Many things. Yeah, and see what lands. I had the same thing. My daughters are 16 and 18 years old, and they'll get into one of my buildings, exciting tournament, or they'll just something, excitement around my business. And like, Dad. How come you didn't force me to play more? Yeah. Like, I didn't want to, my parents, like you said, they didn't raise me to play. Like, I, my dad, if you ever met him, it's hilarious, was the farthest thing from a golfer. And he lives like a fish out of water, a golf course. That was my sport. I, I enjoyed golf. I enjoyed hockey. They didn't, none of my parents did ever made me do anything. I just chose it. And I felt that was the best way to raise my kids, too. So I admire you for that. So. Well, thank you. I mean, it was I'm no different. My mom and dad grew up in Indianapolis and uh, and moved to Wisconsin whenever when they were young and and had their uh, two little daughters and uh, you know so he he knew basketball but knew nothing about hockey. Right, right. Yeah. He said you said he played football. Where did he? He went to Xavier. Okay. Uh, played football there in a scholarship, but got too many concussions his first year and had to quit playing. Right, right. Uh, are your parents still alive? My dad passed away three years ago in September, okay. but my mom is still still going strong. Alive and just, kicking? Yeah, I just Zoomed with her and the family last night. She lives out in California, right? A lot of your she family does. lives out there, right? Yeah, they migrated. My sisters, uh, all three of them at one time were in California, and Karen and Sheila 
uh, went to SC, like you had mentioned, Sheila yep. went to SC. Uh, Karen went to law school and University of San Diego. They all met people, married, and my dad got, t- uh, mom got tired of you know traveling Commuting. from Minnesota out there when the grandkids were born. So they officially moved out to California, San Jose, in '96. Okay, yeah. you, you did some moving. So I love the story about you moving from. Uh, uh, Wisconsin to Minnesota. Yeah. And I like how you didn't like sugarcoat it. A lot of people like sugarcoat. Like, wow, we moved because we moved to Edina because of the the educational system or we we moved there for this or you moved to Minnesota from for hockey. Pretty yeah, much. I don't think my, you know, my dad never never officially said that, but yeah. I mean, we did. He had a company that he had uh manufacturers rep company uh, and he served the five state North South Dakota, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Iowa. Minnesota was more in the middle. And like I told you before, there was a family that had moved from Edina to Wisconsin and played in our association and uh, kept talking to my dad about, you've got to go see Minnesota hockey. And that was, that's what he just put the, put that thought in my dad's mind, you know? So, and your first uh taste of Minnesota hockey is what happened there how did what, how did you d- you know, dive into it that guy told my dad about the state tournament and my dad decided to throw us all in the car and go to the state tournament literally during the state tournament so it was a, we went there got there on the on the Saturday like in the morning we drove out on the Saturday morning got there from you know took three four and a half hours to get to St. Paul dad bought scalp tickets and we've, we, we, those saw, weren't cheap, by the no, way. No, I, no. And I knew nothing about the state tournament, had only played, you know, in small rinks in Wisconsin and youth hockey, uh, may, maybe one or two tournaments where there might be right. 30, 40 people. And we had tickets that were fairly low to the, the ice. I mean, we were in the first, you know, in the corner, maybe 10 rows up. I mean, that's yeah. the seats we had. We didn't, we weren't up in the nosebleeds. Um, and it was Edina and, and Rochester. Rochester, and so I was just in awe. My, I think my mouth, my dry, you know, I probably have my mouth open in awe the whole game. Just looking at the fans, the uh, the two sections of schools and the bands, it was just crazy. And soon thereafter, your dad uh, pulls up stakes in Cedarburg, and you move to Edina. Mm-hmm. And now Cedarburg, that's a small town. I mean, so the culture change from Cedarburg to Edina must have been huge. You know, it was, I think, um, you know, it was like maybe 4,500 people lived in Cedarburg. We lived outside of town about five miles on a small farm. And my sisters were all in 4-H. We had horses and cows and, you know, things like that. But, um, you know, my dad had that business, so we were called, you know, like he was a gentleman's farmer. We had other actual farmers that used the land. And, um you know, so, yeah, it was a huge culture shock in a lot of respects uh, for me just because of, the like, the clothing. And, you know, I was a farm kid. We wore flannel shirts and, you know, you wore, you know, nice shoes to school. Um, and, you know, people were making fun of my shoes and, uh, you know, my pants, I you know, whatever. And, uh, you know, when he dined at the time, I don't know, they all had – certain kinds of jeans and Nike, Nike shoes back then. And, and I remember coming back to my mom and saying, I, I got to get new shoes. And she says, no, you don't. Your shoes are fine. So, <laughs> I, you know, it didn't bother me that much, but it was a, it was a big culture shock because I went from taking a bus 
that, you know, I was on for half hour in the morning and half hour at night to I walked to school at Edina. Yeah. So at what point, uh, you know, you're in eighth grade, right, when you mm-hmm. moved there? So eighth grade, uh, you show up, you think you're pretty good at, at sports. Was there a lot of, because it's a bigger school, bigger opportunities, did you run into some trouble with, with players and getting involved and making the teams? No, like I, you know, the one thing that happened, I played eighth grade tackle football. I never played it before. I got injured right after the Beltline trial back then. There was a tryout that you had to go through cones in a time, you know, fashion or whatever. And then they gave you a letter that said you're invited to the Beltline, meaning the AMB tryout. So right. it was just a tryout to go to the tryouts. And I did that. And then I had a football game, broke my arm, separated my shoulder, couldn't do the tryout, I wrote letters to the two coaches, and then I had my, a coach from Wisconsin also write a letter. And the Bantam B coach, who was Ron Gamer, le- put me on the team. And so... Real good first impression. Right? Yeah, not good at the beginning. It was, <laughs> uh, you know, a kid from out of town that got put on a team and didn't try out. But I did try out the first day. I mean, I think I did, I don't know, I think I did pretty good. I don't know, um, but good enough to where that coach who was at that tryout thought I should be on the team. So Now, you're 6'2", 190 at, at your high school. You're playing weight or whatever. Were you a tall, thin, wiry kind of kid, or did you grow late? I don't know. I think I probably grew – I mean, I, I started lifting weights and going to Nautilus, riding my bike to Nautilus with my younger brother back when I was in ninth grade, and I think it really helped. I know it helped. Um, but I also know growing up in, on the farm, you know, I biked in the town starting from when I was 10, uh, right. it was five miles. To see your friends, basically, yeah, right? Yeah. And, and back then it was, you know, no helmet, you know, all the stuff we talk about, you just went. Yeah. And I think biking, uh, as much as I bike, plus we played barn hockey, which is just street hockey inside a barn and it had lights. And, um, you know, I had buddies all from when I started at 10 years old up to when I left, I mean, they'd we'd have four or five guys sleeping over. So we had a, you know, two on two, three on three game. Um, and I know that that was a huge part of my, um, you know, hockey development because we didn't have, we skated like once a week in Wisconsin. Oh, really? Yeah. As a so team. your development was all away from the game. All really. of it. Yeah. I'm a huge, yeah, I'm I, now the, since I've stopped playing professionally, I've been coaching for, over three decades, that's my biggest mantra uh, to parents when I get them in a room, that you know, the more time a kid has with a stick in his hand, and I don't care where it is, doesn't matter where it is, uh, the better he's going to get, no matter what. Because if you can stick hand with a puck and you look at all the best players in the world and not have to look at it, you're light years ahead. It's the equivalent of basketball. I mean, the more yeah. time you're dribbling a ball and shooting the ball, it doesn't matter if it's game or not game. You're you're getting access to the game. Yeah. Right. All right. So, as I said in the intro, you won a state title in 82. Let's start there. Um, it's, it's, it's a unique team because you were Edina West, and the a lot of the best players came. Did, on that 82 team, would you say it was 10, 10 of each, 10 East kids, 10 West kids, or – was a tryout um, based on skill? Oh no, I think I, I'm not. I think it came down to uh, definitely there was a plenty of kids that didn't make that team that could have played in uh, Lake South uh, on any other team. Right. I, I think 
maybe not first second line of any other team. Yeah. But uh yeah, so I'm not sure what the number ratio was from east to west. Uh but yeah, it was uh, definitely a lot of talent at that tryout. When they voted to close the schools, I went through the same thing in Minneapolis. When they voted to close the schools and, and, and merge them, was that a good thing for you as an athlete, or it didn't matter? No, I think it was great. I mean, uh, you know, having played against those guys um, for the last three years, they were our biggest rival, Udina East. So, we, you know, as an athlete and as a competitor, you know, right, you're like, wow, this is going to be good. You know, we get to uh, combine schools. Uh, I think the different thing, the, the thing that might was a little bit harder was, you know, having Eichela as a coach when I had, you know, Bart Larson and Bobby O'Connor for the prior years. So that was the only kind of up in the air for me personally, what it was going to be like uh, to have Eichela uh, as a coach. At that point, though, Eichela was had already established himself as the man. I mean, they hadn't named the uh, street after him yet, but they were. He was well on his way to getting the street named after him over at Braemar. Uh, and when he was named coach, was that a good thing? Were you excited about it, or did you just kind of not like him being a West guy? Oh no! I mean, just what you said. I mean, it wasn't like everyone didn't know who Willard Eichela was, and and I was. Not that I wasn't looking forward to it. I just didn't – it was the unknown. Right. You know, what kind of coach uh, he was going to be. And obviously a huge amount of respect going in. He, you know, it wasn't – you know, so uh, I, I was looking forward to the season. I met Billy Brower. What we did is each each school uh, picked a captain. And so he was picked from east and I was picked from west. And we got to know each other, kind of right. spent time in each other's houses and – um, you know, but, uh, and then I think Ike in the beginning of the year, you know, he tried to, I think, appease everybody. So we had all West guys on one line and right. West guys playing D to D together. And then after we, uh, lost early, uh, in a game, you know, we had a no puck practice and he changed things around quite a bit. <laughs> um, you talked, mentioned Bob O'Connor. I mean, they have named hockey tournaments after this guy, and he was he was very innovative in the way he ran a practice. So Bart wouldn't necessarily run the practice. Bob would run the practice over at Edina West. Walk through the difference between a, a Bob O'Connor practice and an Eichela practice. <laughs> well, I mean, you know, uh, Bobby O'Connor, the, the, the quick, you know, background on, on him, I mean, he was involved with USA Hockey. He was in the thick of things when it came to innovative uh, drills from Russia to Sweden to uh, he's just a st student of the game. And then some, you know, he really was. And so I don't think we had the same practice or same drill other than maybe a sa the same warm up, And we had a lot of different drills, which would be explained. Um, there'd be a name for him. So he would call out a name, but they change on a regular basis. And, uh, and that was the one thing within the first, you know, month uh, once we had the team, you know, uh, my senior year, it was the same drills every day. <laughs> Two-on-ones, down and back, three-on-ones, three-on-twos, lots of flow, you know, winger going down and the center, you know, not the center drive as right. much as center trail. They got a back pass shot. I mean, it was just over and over to a point where – the guys were on me, and I was kind of bothered by it too. And they're like, "Go talk to Ike and ask him if he'll change the drills." <laughs> and so I did. 
Did, you know? did, how much prompting? Did it did many, many prompts or just one prompt to finally go in and talk to him? No, it was a bunch. I mean, most of the guys were the West guys that were saying it. None of the East guys said anything. They just, knew better, right? The West, yeah, they knew better. But I was bothered by him, too, to be honest. I mean, I yeah. was used to you know more, I don't know, creative drills. Right. And, and I liked them. I liked the newness and trying different things. And anyway, so I went in there. I mustered up the courage in the little room in Braemar. Oh, I'd ask, I, can I, Coach, can I talk to you? He said, you know, hey, David, you know, come on, sit down. So I sit down. And I said, I was wondering if you could maybe change, you know, the, the, we're going to change the drills anytime. <laughs> like, <soon. laughs> just said, silence, right? Oh, yeah. Total silence, and he's like, well, you know, David, uh, these drills have worked for me for many years. You know that, right? I'm like, uh, okay. And he goes, and uh, we're going to keep doing them. Okay. And it, just, it was a 30-second <laughs> conversation, and I did a couple of nods and yeses, and out the door I went. Meanwhile, uh, the other Dana West Cougars are sitting there, so what did he say? Yeah, yeah, you know, I came back right away, and I just shook my head. You know, and they shook their head too, but what are you going to do? You know, he's he's the guy. And, um, you know, looking back, I there's a lot that I, as a, as a, as I coach kids too, he's one guy, you know, that repetitiveness, the, um, he really broke down. And I think today it doesn't matter to me. The two-on-ones are so critical in creating offense and um, repetition uh, in all, all the zones when you're carrying the puck. He was really good at that. And um, so, anyway, he uh, the drills didn't change. That's the official. Uh, <laughs> but you, one 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 thing I would guess though is they didn't change, but his system always worked. What was so key about his system? What was made him so great? And maybe elaborate that into 1982 somehow. Uh, I don't know if it's. He, we really didn't do individual skills. We didn't do any drills like that. I mean, other than even the warm-ups uh, that I remember, uh, they were flow warm-ups. I don't remember standing stationary and taking shots at a goalie. I, I just don't. Maybe, you know, some guys on our team that might happen to listen to this might remember otherwise. It was just a real flow uh, type of um, – it reminded me actually a lot when I got to Edmonton. Edmonton's practices were like that too. All up and down rushes. I mean, two on O's, three on O's, three on O's, weaves. Uh, defensemen were doing this too, right? Up, down, up, down, and two on ones, neutral zone, regroups, two on ones, you know, in. in Must have been good for conditioning. No, it was. And I think that above all, I think Edina's been known for, their, at least in that time. And leading up to that in the 70s, it's just a, a great skating team. And and I think that's the one thing, especially in the beginning of the year, he had these shirts, which I thought I thought were awesome, that he gave to all of us. Ike did. Big team and big, big bold letters and then little small letters that said little me. And what a way to what a message to have that you see all the guys wearing underneath your underneath your stuff so you see them all the guys wearing it every day right this, yeah that's a message that a very clear message from that you see every day and you're reminded big team little me and i think that's what he he you know he wove that into his practices it was all about the team not any one individual and he and and um 
And he also benched, you know, coached the bench like that too. You could see as a player, if a player made an individual play, or let's say he's killing a penalty and he was chopping somebody pretty hard to maybe get another penalty, which happened early in the season with John DeVoe. He lifted John DeVoe off the bench by his ear. Really? And said to him, don't you ever do that again. And, you know, so he had these you know, times during the season where he did little things that, looking back, were real critical uh, for the team to learn a, a pretty good lesson. You know, you're killing a penalty. Do not get another penalty. No. <laughs> you know, that was – and. uh you know, and so, um, and little things individually, if there was body language, he was a big, um, you know, he didn't like that at all either. So if you slouch your shoulders, if a guy, you know, puts you off sides, he would bench you. Right. And you knew why you were getting benched. It was just, you didn't act like that. And he talked about, he told us one time we were in the season, he wanted us to pick the puck up for the referees. And he gave us a hard time if we didn't. So if there was a whistle that blew, he said, pick it up and hand it to him. And we did. Really? Yep. That's really interesting. So I'm reading the book, uh, Attorney Time. I got to the chapter on the 82 team. And he's the, the author of the book, David Levesque and Lauren Nelson, they spent a lot of time talking about the divide between East and West. And at the end of the year, it was there was no divide. It was it's at least through this book. Yeah. Walk through that, the, 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 the rivalry. I mean, you didn't live it because you moved there in eighth grade. But a lot of these kids were rivals since first or second grade. Yeah, I don't know who wrote that book or why they would think there's any kind of rivalry. Um, you said early on. It was- yeah, I mean, early on, I think it was because, like I said, Ike had put all got you know, three guys, West guys, me, Wally Chapman, uh, John DeVoe on one line. Uh, and then the second line was all East guys. So after we lost, I think it was Richfield, we lost a game, had no puck practice, and Ike changed the lines around. And so I think – um, and I think early on what we realized too, even though we had a talented team, we, number one, we could get beat. I mean, right. you know, it's not like we're not going to get, or can't get beat. And then I think the other thing we really realized looking back is that people expected us to win. And there was a lot of stress around that, yeah. uh, in and of itself, because it's one thing to say, you know, you got a great team, but it's another thing when you, when you feel like everyone's expecting you to win and, I think that was the biggest then that that's what pulled us together more than anything because we knew that number one we did have a good team but if we didn't play like a team it didn't matter right you know right what was it like I always love asking these questions these guys the 80s guys playing in the I think it was the Lake South at the time they yep. called that because there was Lake the Lake South. North and I don't think Minnetonka was in the Lake South I think they were in the Lake North so you had Kennedy Jefferson Richfield probably Burnsville in that league. Now, when you look at some of the rosters of those guys, I mean, Richfield, you say Richfield, like, oh, people scoff. I'm like, Richfield had some of the most talent-laden teams of them all. You know, like, in your age, it was probably, like, Tim Thomas and some of those guys, right? Tom Ward, yeah. Tom Ward, yeah, it's just phenomenal teams. But every night was a battle. Kennedy and Jefferson were, you know, 2,000, like, 2,200 students' schools, yeah, you know that's a lot of kids, eight hundred, nine hundred per class, uh, at, at those schools. You never, it was never a night off. No, there was never a night off. The only night off was St. Louis Park, right? <laughs> Oops, and I yeah. uh, and I don't mean to throw that out there just to say it, but that was really the only time that um, 
we we had we'd have a night off because and I think Ike did that too. There's always the Iron Range uh, trip that we took. Yep. And and really those both my junior year and senior year were huge eye openers because they were the best teams that we had played outside of Lake South by far. So Hibbings with Micheletti's and then Corey Millen. Okay, uh, yeah. Cloquet and Grand Rapids with Tony Kellen and, and Malwitz. You know, so those teams up there were extremely good. And uh, and probably the toughest teams we played both my junior and senior year. Did Ike ever – he seemed like a kind of a quiet, you know, reserve kind of guy when I've talked to him. Did he ever, like – tell you guys about growing up up there and and what it, that was like or did you get not did you get none of that from him none of it that really high, during high school not one he was very straight and to the point you know uh, if you had a you know like i said that that conversation with him about the practices was maybe 20 seconds right and uh, it wasn't until after when i came back in college we had longer conversations and then uh, over the years, I've, you know, connected with him. Um, more recently, when I moved here, we went to Perkins. and uh, But the last time prior to that was when I coached uh, the, a, an O2 team, a squirt team from San Jose, and we had a, a tournament out here. And I came early to watch Edina play at Braemar, and Ike was there sitting in the corner with his wife. And we sat there and talked, and he talked to me more about his early life um, and – traveling around the u.s and he he has a photographic memory i mean he yeah. really it's incredible i don't know if he, when you've talked to him how he can just rip through uh these games and times and periods and players like it's right now yeah i mean it's crazy how uh good of a memory he has i, I i've always wanted to know why he went to the university of michigan from Eveleth, minnesota that's more like it just seems like it's so far away when you know there's no air travel commercial air yeah. travel like how did he get there and why did he choose that school it just that's one of those things like i've always wondered about like how he got there and you know, his whole upbringing of Eveleth. i mean Eveleth was the dyna when he was growing up i mean that's what he's used to is winning yeah, you know, he was a winner, born true and true. So, all right. So, walk through your recruitment uh, to the University of Wisconsin. So, you're what uh, senior year is when you decided to go to Wisconsin? Was it junior year? Yeah, you know what, uh, Grant Stanbrook, the assistant coach there, uh, came to our games even as I think as uh, a junior, definitely junior year. He was at a lot of our games. They knew I wanted to go there. I mean, that was my team growing up as a kid i used to right. watch their tape delayed games my dad let me stay up late so mark johnson was my you know my hero and um craig norwich and steve alley and taft and mike eaves i'm sure a lot of your listeners don't know any of these guys but these i do are, yeah. i know who they are and so <laughs> you know i think everyone knew for the most part uh, that i did want to go there but i still got recruited um by the teams at the end that i went to uh, trips to were notre dame uh, Michigan Tech, um, and University of Minnesota Duluth and Wisconsin. Those are the four schools I went to trips on, and 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 then at the end when I was thinking about signing at the very end, Lou Lamarillo. Actually, oh, I went to Providence too as a trip. I forgot about that. Lou Lamarillo, who a lot was of a, Minnesota kids in that era went there. Yeah, Bianchi went there, and a lot of the guys that were your contemporaries. Yeah, and I and I almost went there just because of Lou Lamarillo. He came down. We met at. Um, Hotel Sofitel back when it was yep. Hotel Sofitel. And uh, he almost, he's unbelievable, unbelievably good at 
obviously in negotiations even back then. And I really liked their campus and the rink was on campus and, uh, and not to go on and on about that, but uh, Bob Johnson at the time offered me uh, two thirds of a scholarship. And I was, my dad was taken back by that because every other school was offering me a full scholarship and that's kind of how Bob Johnson did it. He chopped up the scholarships yeah. to get an extra scholarship and everything else. And I still wanted to go there, but my my dad was not happy with that. But Bob Johnson said, hey, listen, if, if John Newberry and Joey Mullen sign what it looks like they're going to, I'll give you a full ride. So they were verbally committed to Wisconsin, but maybe we're going to go pro, right? Yeah, they'd already right. they were at they were actually playing at Wisconsin, but and they ended up going pro. So anyway, but yeah, that's kind of how the recruiting went. I mean, there was a lot of guys my senior year. We had a lot of scouts at games just because, like you said, Lake South had a great conference back then, and they were followed and recruited by a lot of the big, you know, less every one of yeah, them. Yeah, WCHA was represented, the CCHA. And there were a lot of Eastern schools, the Harvards and Brown universities that were there because we had guys that went there. Yeah. They were smart enough to get in. Yeah, all right. So you, you show up at Wisconsin, and you just won a state title, and now you're put on this team that, that's going to make a run as well. Did you just think, like, you had died and gone to heaven or this was easy? Like, all, all I do is fo- follow winning programs? Or wh- where, do you, <laughs> where do you fit in the whole fate part of this uh, uh, um, algorithm? You know what was really weird there is that the difference between high school and college hockey was the physicality of it. And even though I was a, you know, a bigger guy, I had no idea what it was like to play, to really have one-on-one battles. And from day one, Pat Flatley – Right. Took me aside after practice and said, "Hey, try to get the puck for me." I'm like, "That's first day of practice." After. Really? Yes. And I spent probably ten minutes. I couldn't get it from him, and I'm not kidding you. He was unbelievable at mucking. We call it mucking the puck, holding on to the puck. I try to go one side, like he turned his big butt, you know, ass against me, and I, I just. And again, I think that's some of the things we didn't learn at Edina. We learned those, you know, rushes and playing the game. But not a lot of physicality. Like you, uh, my junior year, I think that was one thing not to skip around. But Doug Wu, who coached South St. Paul, I mean, they came out and ran us. And we had never played a team really that ran us like that. And, we, you know, they beat us. But um, so anyway, back to Wisconsin, Pat Flatley kind of took me under his wing. Um, and I am forever grateful for that. And I didn't play most of the first half of the season. I played a little bit. Fourth line. Full scholarship, third, too. Third line, yeah. And then uh, Junior National Tournament happened at Christmas. Some guys got injured. It's kind of the story, uh, my life story from college to pro. Guys got injured, and then I got in on a line with Pat Flatley in the middle of the season, and this other guy, our center, small, crafty, great player, Paul Houston, um, and we ended up being pretty much the number one line from the January all the way through to the NCAs. Right, right. Um, you had a lot of, I'm just looking at this roster, you got the Johansons were on the team. You had a, a couple of Dinah guys. You had Tom Carroll was on the team. I mean, a lot of really good, solid players. Um, did you guys struggle in WCHA, or did you guys uh, have you have your way with the rest of the league? No, no, the WCHA, we were we, – you know, just got into the playoffs that season, if I remember. And Minnesota was, uh, the Gophers had a great team. North Dakota had a great team. 
So those were really our two biggest rivalries uh, and during the WCHA. We had to play um, North Dakota, uh, Minnesota in the playoffs, and then uh, the WCHA playoffs, and then uh, the uh, North Dakota in North Dakota. So, yeah, those were our, our two biggest and toughest opponents that year. Right. And then after that, our biggest opponent and everyone's opponent for that 83 to whatever was UMD. UMD. I was going to say yeah. UMD. They were just a, a force. They were. In those three years, it was uh, hard to stop type yep. of team. Surdy had just kind of put together a great program. So w- let's go back, recollect. Uh, you guys make it to the Final Four, which is basically in a, in a home rink for you guys. You'd played a lot. For a lot of those guys, you'd play a lot up at Ralph Ingolstead. In the, in the Frozen Four, they didn't call it that then. But yeah. The Frozen Four was in Grand Forks. Walked through the two games and winning the title and and that and that feeling of winning. Well, you know, it was great because we had just beat them in the playoffs, right, there. to be in the final four. Yeah. So uh, it felt more like a home rank because those are two, you know, two-game total goals where we won in overtime. And that series was in itself another story because we were um, – we scored the OT goal, right? They right. checked the stick. It was illegal. We get a penalty – no way. We're shorthanded, and we scored shorthanded. Short- <laughs> I'm not kidding. I was, so I was in the locker room with Pat Ethier, not Minnesota yeah. guy. We were high five and had our stuff off because we had gone through the line. Yeah. We actually hog got went through the line. No way. Yes, in the locker room. Me and him are in there. Then uh, Coach Shower comes in and said, put your stuff on. We got the penalty, the penalty, legal stick. We got to play. We had to put our gear back on. It was within 30 seconds. Paul Houck came down the side, had the puck. The D didn't take him. Snapshot goal. We celebrated <laughs> again. So, anyway, to fast forward, so we're in Minnesota. We beat them in the playoffs. Go to Grand Forks, beat them in two-game total goal. And then we came back for the Final Four like two weeks later. We played Providence the first game, one, two to one. That was the toughest game we played probably all season. Chris Trieri was – isn't that funny that – Chris, Chris Trier was a goalie. freshman goalie. And then the Kleinendorf, I think it was Kurt Kleinendorf. So I was a center. It was Scott and Kurt. I don't yeah, know. Scott, maybe, it was, maybe it was Scott. Scott was still there. Kurt was Big, there. Big, other strong. Around. Yeah. Yeah. And um, they, Tim Army was on that team. And a couple, Orlando, Gates Orlando, played in pro for a bit. They had a really good, solid team. And then we had Harvard in the final Neil Sheehy and the Fusco brothers. Yeah. And we beat them like 6-2 or 5-2. But. Yeah. Oh, this is good stuff. This is good stuff. All right. So you you play a few years at Wisconsin, all four years at Wisconsin. Yeah. yeah. Um, and your career ends. You guys lose to UMD, which is we did, a good segue, yeah. right? You lose to those guys. Um, and you got a couple months before you sign, or you're going to maybe play pro the next fall. Uh, or maybe some guys actually played in the spring. Walk through that two-month window of being done in February to actually skating with the Canadians. Yeah, I, you know, I, I dropped my second semester at Wisconsin because I thought I was going to – they told me that they wanted to sign me. And so I dropped my second semester senior year and I went home, came back to Edina and just waited around. And then my dad, who never got involved in much anything of, that had to do with hockey – from everything, coaching or anything else. Like, if I complained about not playing, he'd just say, so what? Suck it up, you know? right? Yeah, that's my dad. But they wanted to sign me on a two-way contract, and he pushed back and said, 
you're not there's no way you're not playing all that taking all that time at college and uh signing a two-way contract so I was grateful for that, but on the flip side, I was back home. There's buddies I, I was partying, having a good time, thinking <laughs> I'm not, I'm not gonna go play. And then, literally, it's five, six weeks later, we finally signed. Some other guys got hurt, and I signed. Hadn't skated for six weeks, five, six weeks. I fly from Minnesota to, to Montreal, and this is like uh, March, you know. So there's one month left in the regular season in the NHL. Right. They bag skated me. Uh, after practice, every practice for a good three weeks. They even took me on, you know, the road trips so they could have someone bag skating me. And um, I didn't – so I played my first NHL game. The th- uh, there's three games less n- left in the season. I got into my first game against uh, Mario and Pittsburgh at the Forum in Montreal, and then that was it. I played three games, maybe six shifts, eight right. shifts a game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In fact, my first shift, I'll tell you about that because it's so funny. It was during play. I don't know how far it was into the, you know, into the game, but I'd never been on that bench before. Right. right. You practice. You walk through and you practice, and there, we didn't sit inside the bench. Well, it turns out the bench, how they built it, it was way up. So your feet were like halfway up the boards already. The water was like right at your feet. So right. they had built it up a good foot and a half. Yeah. So – you literally could just jump. You know, you didn't have to reach to jump over. That's why they right. did it. Yeah. But I'm sitting there not thinking of anything. And I'm, look, I'm watching my guy, and I was just on a melee, you're up. And uh, I jumped. I was so excited. I jump like I would normally jump off a bench to go over the boards. Right. And it was like 1,001, 1,000. I mean, I, bang, I hit my feet. And you know how when you fall off a tree? And yeah. it kind of jars your legs. Yeah, yeah. That's the first feeling I ever got when on an NHL rink was like I felt like I was my legs were broke. But uh, did you fall? No, I, the good thing I didn't fall. But okay. I was shaking because it was literally another four feet down than what it would normally normal, have been. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah, that's uh, that was my first shift. But <laughs> and then I got lucky. Really, it was lucky to. It's kind of the theme here. There's a yes, very, there's a big theme here. The Playing. lucky life of David Maley. Yeah, well, guys got hurt, and I got to play. I mean, I shot pucks at guys at practice just to see if I could, you know, break a few ankles, but guys actually got hurt. Playoff hockey in the NHL is pretty demanding, and I got in, so I was lucky. So uh, you, uh, the, the regular season ends, did they say, hey, uh, you should stick around and you're going to practice with us, or did they say go back to Edina? Oh, no, regular season ended – and they're because your line for the first round of playoffs is is zero 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 zero. You didn't play. Yeah, right? yeah. Right? So they have what they well, like the guys call them black aces, and uh, the teams can take and roster. I think up to twenty something right. four players. So I was a part of that group of guys: Sergio Momesso, Stefan Riche, uh, Steve Rooney. Um, I forget the D. Mike Lawler was in and out for a while. So, yeah, it was a group that every time after practices would be 45 minutes, real quick, high tempo, high paced, and then the real work where the, the black aces would be doing laps. And for another 45 minutes, we're out there, basically. Right. Um, as a uh, walk me through the playoff play at playing time that you got, you know, in the, se- in the second round and, the, and then the cup final. 
Yeah, you know, the way Montreal worked, really, the, with the trap system and everything else, there wasn't a lot of, you know, creative one-on-one -on -one play. If you if you lost the puck and you played third or fourth line and you're on a rush, <laughs> you didn't play. You would get – you just – that's just the way it was. You you needed the puck, you know, get the puck in D, push it past the D, get it behind the D, and just forecheck as hard as you can. And, right. and so the guys that played on the power play, Bobby Smith, the Mats Naslins, and Shell Darlene's, and, the, you know, those guys could get away with maybe one or two of those, just like every other team. Right. You know yeah, what yeah, I mean? Yeah. The so, leash gets a little longer, right? Yeah. So I was, you know, and that's the other thing. You know, those black aces, and we worked so hard. And I think because of the grueling part of the playoffs, you um, it takes a lot out of you, and it's hard. You can't really recoup that as a player when you're playing a regular shift in the playoffs. That's why when you see guys, even in today's game, that come in that haven't played, you ever notice that? They look like they have better jump or they're quicker or Correct. whatever. yeah, yeah. And it really has a lot to do with, you know, it's a lot of stress and strain and wear when you're playing in the playoffs. It just yeah. is. You don't get a chance to take a break. But when you're a guy that hasn't played and you're chomping at the bit and you've been skating your butt off yeah. for, we you know, days or weeks, you're ready to play. You're ready to play that five- to six-minute role where you might get three shifts a game, but you're ready to go through the boards. And yeah. that was me. I was – in incredible shape. So when I played, I was effective. I think uh, physically, that's what they wanted me to be able to go in, beat on D, you know, get the puck out, get some shots on net, and don't get scored on. Right. You know, that was a, you get scored on, that was the other thing that kept you on the bench. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it's, it's the cup final, it's game five, you're in uniform. And it's kind of probably one of your better games. If you look at the, the, at the box scores, it's one of your better games. You score a big goal. And, and you did, did you get rewarded more playing time the more you scored? Or like in the in the game five when you guys clinched or you won the cup, you had two points. Yeah, you know, I don't, I'm don't. i not a big stack guy, but I do remember my first goal, and it was the second game. So we lost the first game in Calgary. They had mm -hmm. home ice. The second game was 1-1. And I scored in the second period, late in the second period, and made it two to one. And that oh no, I'm sorry. I made it one to one. And that stayed the same score through the end of the third. And we went into overtime and won that game with the fastest overtime goal in NHL history. And so that was a big deal in a lot of respects because one thing, I didn't like the fact Bob, Bob Johnson, Badger Bob, left, recruited me, and then left to go to Calgary. That right. bothered me because I really wanted to get coached by a guy. He was a legend. Yeah, well, very much so. And so, uh, but, yeah, it was – and it was super weird because it was my first NHL goal, and it's in an, an away rink, and I could hear myself screaming. You know, like <laughs> – you know what I mean? Dream come true, right? Yeah, and then Larry Robinson came in from the point, you know, big – Bear hug, and it's really funny because I lived with Chris Chelios when I got there. Right? We were we were college teammates and buddies, and he kept saying from day one, "I got to get on your plaque. I got to get on your plaque." That was his biggest thing. I go, "What do you mean on your plaque?" And it was to be on your first goal plaque, which was a big deal. Yeah, you know? and they made a real nice Canadian. They put the assists on there, right? They put the assists on there. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He was way ahead of his time. He knew he wanted, to, you know, wanted to be in the hallways of his teammates, you know, first puck. But a couple of Hall of Famers, Guy Carboneau, 
And Chris Chelios assisted on my first on your goal. First goal. Yeah, that was kind of nice. They made the plaque. Yeah, they made and they made the they made the Hall of Fame, which so at at this point you have you you've you you've completed this triple crown that we talked about. You win the Stanley Cup, you get to hoist it, the whole deal, right? Like, where at, at some point were you like, is this a dream? Is this really happening? It had to have gotten at that point, right? I, I think. I mean, I don't know about you know when you look back at things, it was pretty surreal just to go to Montreal because. The first day I got there, I'm in the locker room, and the guy, you know, the coach wanted me to get on the ice. No one else was on the ice. They just wanted me to go on the ice and skate, get you know, because they yeah. knew I said I hadn't skated. And there's 15 people, reporters at least. I couldn't get undressed, and they're like, "Well, you know, you can get you can get undressed." I'm like, "No, there's like chicks here." I mean, I'm <laughs> okay. Just came from college. You had nobody. One person might talk to you outside of the rink. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So that was a total shock, really a huge shock. And then I'm sitting next to Bobby Dangle. Yeah. Bobby, Bobby Smith, who I watched at the Met from eighth grade on. Destroyed. Remember the, and, when and they I, won that went to the Cup and yeah. they just destroyed everybody? So I'm next to him, and he asked me, like, he knew I was playing that first game I talked to you about against Pittsburgh. He goes, hey, where are you going to eat? I was staying at a hotel right down the street from the Forum. I go, I don't know. You know, I was eating at a diner. And he goes, no, you're coming to my house. Cook me my first pregame meal. He had reel-to-reel, a reel-to-reel stereo system playing some jazz, you know. It was like, <laughs> uh, you know, it's great. It was awesome. And, and I remember calling my buddies back and going, oh, you're never going to guess who I had my pregame meal with. I, I call him Bobby Dangle, but, uh, you know, Kemp's ice cream, for yeah. sure, the best-tasting oh. ice cream around. So he was awesome. I had some great veterans that were on that team that really, really were super, super impactful to me. Not only as a as a rookie, but yeah, even after I have you know a couple of stories about like the Bob Gainies and Larry Robinson, they're just phenomenal people. Um, walk through being in a you know you moved to from Edina there, and it, you know the French speaking and. Uh, all of the Quebecois stuff. Did did you run into any trouble there? Or did you have any fun engagements there? Because it's almost moving to a foreign. It is like a, even a foreign foreign country. Because yeah. Winnipeg is a lot like Minneapolis, where 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 uh, Quebec City and Montreal are a little bit more like Europe. Yeah, I mean, I didn't. You know, like I said, I lived with uh, Chris Chalios. When I first got there, I was in a hotel. That whole playoff, I was in the hotel. The next year, training camp, I lived with Chris Chelios and Tom Curvis from. Right. So I was in the basement of a condo. It's back they, to UMD again, right? Yeah, they were upstairs. And so, you know, I followed them. They had the cars. I didn't. I was a rookie, you know, young guy. And so it was to the rink, back home, to the restaurant, back home, to the bar. You know, right. I really didn't sightsee. I wish I would have. Yeah. The, the Montreal's a beautiful town but you know it was really hockey was the main thing we were playing you know, you go from college playing friday and saturday night to playing tuesday night thursday night and maybe a back-to-back that's a that's a way different animal than playing you know practicing recovering on a sunday monday and practicing tuesday wednesday thursday and playing a friday night saturday game right way different yeah so, it's a different league so I didn't really um, do much else than you know play the game. You know I was uh, wish I would have 
done more sightseeing but didn't have the time. I just there's just so much to that town and so much to the language that's just different than any other place in North America. That's why I was kind of well. Half the team, I mean, a lot of the teams spoke were French. You know, could speak French. Bob could, uh, Ganey could speak French. Um, Carbono. We had four or five French guys in that team. I you, most people there. You know, going out for restaurant to restaurants or whatever else i didn't really feel like because i didn't know french it didn't affect you No, that they were there are the odd people that i think you could get see on their face they didn't like the fact i couldn't speak french right Uh, i think you know uh but that's just the way it is there i think there's a big difference i mean from but it's a lot different I think in Quebec City than Montreal. Quebec City is a little way, way, way more. Way more. Let's go through. I, I, I spring this question on you. We talked a little pre-show on it, but talk about the lifestyle. Uh, it, it doesn't necessarily talk about the games, day, you know, the day-to-day stuff, but just the actual lifestyle. Uh, you're a college kid, um, and then you spring yourself right into the NHL, and you're playing, you know, for the next, you know, ten years or so uh, in the NHL. And after after the season, you have to train. During the season, you're, you're a little bit of a rock star in a way where you're you're being driven. You know, you're taking planes, and you're making good money. Walk through that lifestyle because we're going to get to what happens after hockey uh, when when that ends. But when it when it's going on, you're living that ten years or so. Uh, again, is this is this something that what you'd always dreamed of, or is this like I, I, I kind of pitching yourself again? That's a really tough question to answer. Um, it really is. I think they're, it was super exciting in the beginning, obviously, to be part of a cup team. And right. then going to Jersey and almost there five years, and at the time Jersey was the last place team in the league. So I think my favorite time of all in playing pro was in Jersey because we – we were the last, you know, kind of laughing stock uh, of right. the NHL. And we went almost to the cup finals in, in 1988, which I think put the devils on the map in a way. And, and I, and I was proud to be a part of that and still am, you know, we, they got pushed around back in the day before I got there and not to say that I had anything to do with it, but uh, then on the flip side of it, I think there's a side of the NHL that I was not prepared for. And that was fighting. And that was after the Stanley cup year, which playoff hockey back then there really there was one fight I, it was I didn't occasional it, but it was not a lot maybe the first rounds like Boston Montreal series or you know real big rivalries but I didn't needless to say in the, the few amount of games I played I didn't fight and didn't have to fight the next year training camp middle of a game in between doing the ice a scout came Neil Armstrong who was his Canadian father, yeah. father of the guy, uh, um, St. Louis GM. He came in and put, like, hey, can you come outside? I'm like, yeah, what's up? Love this guy. I love Neil Armstrong. He's an awesome guy. And because uh, he'd come to Wisconsin and talk to me and encourage me. And he said, hey, the, the brass are waiting for you to drop your gloves, fight. I'm like, what? Really? So next shift, I'm in the front of the net. This guy, this guy was just. Rick Hayward was just reefing me. He was a tough guy. I played in the minors, and I dropped my gloves and fought him. I think from that point on, um, you know, I really wish I would have got my ass beat, but I didn't. And then I think there, there's a lot of expectation that came with, you know, ob- I mean, I back then in the 80s, if you're 6'2", you're a big guy, 
and most guys were, you know, around that size anyhow. You know, it wasn't a lot of – but you, if you played the way I played, you had to fight at some point in time. Right. And so – and I won't get – you know, go all into it in, in great detail. It's just not something that – um that I like to do. It's not, you know, it's, it was part of the game and I was fine with doing it if it was part of the actual game. Meaning right. if, if somebody's hurt, you know, goes after a player on my team, I'm going to, I'm on, I'm going to, I was on a teams that that just didn't, we didn't, we didn't let it happen. Right. That was the difference from changing Jersey around. We just, this, there's no way someone's going to get away with that. But it was this whole idea of, you know, fighting guys just to fight guys that, really bothered me especially right. guys that didn't play much that were could barely skate and had you know eight consonants in their name <laughs> uh you know that i just it it was it was just tough uh to have to deal with that or think about looking at the schedule and being here here and here and might having to fight this guy this guy this guy you know so yeah. That was kind of the, the low side of of the NHL that that people don't see and it was a real tough era you know late 70s 80s even in 90s for that matter it yeah. was just a lot of clutch and grab and uh one I, one story needs to be told here you were on the devils when the jim jim schoenfeld game happened jim yeah. jim uh the coach of the devils at the time i can only imagine what he was like to play for but it was all kind of exposed right there on tv what happened with the referee getting we, we, we it has to be pg-13 so he 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 didn't say some nice things to the referee i think did he grab him too no he 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 just said, you know, have another salad. Like, I think you mix no, the salad. Donut. Donut. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. And it was FF, right? After that, yeah. right? It wasn't nice, put it no. that way, right? Um, but what happened afterwards, it's almost like historic. It's like historic. It would never happen today what happened then. And I love telling the story. Like, the way I understand it was the the officials, the next, so the next game, it's you're playing Boston in the in the, in the any in the this is the no it was that it was in Jersey the yeah, game was in Jersey you're playing that, Boston though right yeah we're playing Boston yeah and yeah, yeah you're it wasn't Boston Garden right so you're playing New Jersey New Jersey's playing Boston and this is the Stanley Cup playoffs yes. this isn't the regular season this isn't some exhibition this is the Stanley Cup playoffs the referees boycott the game yeah because they didn't suspend Schoenfeld yeah they didn't suspend yet. the coach yet right. Yeah. They hadn't. It hadn't. It gone. Hadn't it, done yet. Yeah, it it, it, done the paper yet. had gone up to the to NHL offices, but there had been no decisions. So yes. until the decision was made, the referees boycotted the game. Yes. And what happened next? We had off ice officials ref the game, and these were, were not. Wearing, these weren't AHL refs shipped up from Richmond or no. Utica. I mean, this is this is guys that were like basically boot hockey refs. That's right. a really good explanation. <laughs> I mean, one guy had all steel blades. I don't know where he got the skates. It might have been out of some trophy case. Who knows? Like not like the ones you got in this office because those things look like the circa 1930. Right? Yeah, yeah, a little nicer than that, right? Yeah, a little nicer than that. But all steel. And they wore yellow practice jerseys, the linesmen. Which now you got to remember, we were playing. This Boston. is Stanley Cup playoffs. Yeah, but and and both were tough teams. Yeah, they had five or six guys that could fight on both teams, and I think all you know, we were. It was like that. We didn't talk about it, but we you had everyone afterwards after that whole series. We've talked about it since, thinking, you know, this could get really bad. 
Because the, you know, when you talk yeah. about a fight, when you've seen some of those old fights and another fight breaks out, well, if you're in that in any of those fights, either five on fives, you gotta hope the guy you're fighting against, if if he's got you down or you're beat, that he's not gonna keep beating, beating on you. you. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of an unwritten rule. You yeah. just don't do it. But I've seen old tape where guys they don't hold they don't hold back. Tiger got, Williams. Yeah. And so it's always that fear, right? But that and I think there was at least at least a dozen offsides missed. <laughs> and you keep playing, but I'm talking by four feet. Right. Where you, you know, when you're playing, you're like, oh, that's all. So you let up. Yeah. And guys would just keep playing because there's no whistle. It was the strangest game. But no fights, though, right? So no, kind of a respect, was, like, we can't fight because someone could die, right? I don't know. You know, it's just, it, it kind of reminded me of throughout my career, there's been times where things have happened in a game where you're like, okay, mark the calendar because you couldn't get that guy that game. Yeah. We're getting them next game or we're getting that team. Then we're going to give it to them. That just, that was like an unwritten rule. And I think, and that happened a lot of times guys would try to get, you know, the ne- that particular game would get such a buildup of, Hey, it's going to be fights, fights, fights. But I think from a player point of view, a lot of times it never happened. Yeah. It was the weirdest thing. But then it'd be just some off game and no rivalry, no nothing, and somebody would do something and it'd be full on Donnybrook. It was the strangest way that that way. You know what I mean? Not yeah. to say a guy wouldn't get like I was talking about before, if a guy cheap shot at a guy and we didn't get him back, you'd get him back the next no time. No matter you what. Yeah. I mean it just you just it was just part of the game. No matter what. So we could go on and on and talk about this, and, and the Schoenfeld thing just popped up into my head here. We could go on and on about your pro career. I want to get to some of the players that you played with. Before we're going to do we'll, we'll end the show with some players and coaches that had yeah. an impact on you, but I want to get away from the rink a little bit here, and you've been quite open about your involvement with recovery, people that are in recovery, and you've been in recovery 24 years. Is that it? Yeah. That's an pretty impressive number. Well, thank you. Um, and I'd just like to expound about it a little bit. Um, you've had quite a bit of dealings with other players. We can obviously won't name them for their anonymity, but is that something that you take great passion in? Is is being a being a resource for whether they're ex hockey players or, or hockey players or just people in the community? You seem to be quite involved and engaged in that community now. Oh, I appreciate it. I mean, you mentioned twenty four years, and I. Uh, you know, I, I, I don't feel like I can take any thanks for that other than the fact, uh, you know, that I showed up and I admitted I had a problem and, right. and asked for help. So there's, you know, so many people along the way and continue uh, on this journey and recovery that have helped me and continue to help me, you know, so. I saw, I was listening to a podcast with Derek Sanderson, who's in, yeah. in recovery, former pro, and he, <laughs> he had a funny line. He said, he, this was on Spit and Chicklets, he said, you know, the minute I... Uh, became sort of the day I became sober. I didn't ever understand Alcoholics Anonymous. I, I love the organization; they do great things. But the last thing I wanted to be was anonymous. Uh, I wanted every 
person in the world to know that I was a drunk and I needed to have everyone keep me accountable. Where do you stand on that a statement like that? I thought it was great, but I also thought there's a little bit of, you know, it's dicey. It's a dicey thing to have uh, have a problem and have a disease and, and to admit it. Not everyone needs to admit it in today's society, but I think more and more you see, I see a lot of coins on social media. I yeah. see a lot of medallions, all that stuff. Where do you fit on in a topic like that? It's funny because just in the last couple of years, um, other than you reminding me when I got here, I was that I was old, that I'd have a lot of things to talk about. <laughs> so it's gonna be a longer show. The no. older you are, the longer the show is. That's it. That's the, you're not that old. But I think you know. To, well, we talked a little bit about about this before the show. I, you know, when I got in recovery, there wasn't anything social media in 1996. I mean, nobody, no. barely, you know, the few people that uh, might have had. Of cell phones, but they're as, as big as a brick. Right. So, what I love about today and the fast forward is social media is breaking down some of those barriers. And I think it's there's a big stigma around uh, people in recovery and a, a stigma just being that people, a lot of people are uneducated about it being a disease, addiction being a disease that, you know, come on, you know, uh, maybe the stereotype of growing up. Uh, you could hold your own mud, hold your liquor, hold whatever, right? Right. Man up, do the, and, and you know. So, I think I like the fact that social media brings you know if it can help one person that old you know age old story. Yeah. I think it's awesome and great, and 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 it's that to me it's relating s- someone else that's hurting and down, relating to someone whether it's on Facebook, Twitter, no matter who it is. And it might be that one thing that switches them off the path that they're on now and the path that that tells them that they're no good, they're going nowhere, and and everything else that our brain, you know, tells us that that we cannot do when we're in that state of mind and body, I'm all for it. I am absolutely all for it. I think the anonymity side of it when it comes to Alcoholics Anonymous – you know, is more about uh, the traditions and how that entity was run, and and when they talk about anon- right. the anonymity am- am- uh, uh, along at the level of press, radio, and film, that's they, what they meant. And as a society, we're not going to go out there and promote AA and promote right. this. And hey, everyone, that you know, you got to come here. It's it's about attraction, you know, rather than promotion. Is a saying that they you know that they talk about. It's about attraction, but. My as a businessman, right? You know, and as an entrepreneur too, I, I think, well, well, yeah, but aren't you going to be able to attract a lot more people if you tell your story and let people know about it? And you know, yeah. so I think there's the the pros and cons of it, um, especially in certain workplaces where it really is up to the individual whether or not they want to talk about them, you know, being in recovery. That's where I think the anonymity is really critical. That. Um, you know, if you're in meetings or you meet somebody that, you know, it's that individual person's right to tell right. other people that they're, it's their right. they're right if they're in recovery or not. So, you know, in that regard, you go by David M or, right. uh, you know, Tony Z. So uh, I like that uh, side of, of how um, the program runs in that regard. But in the hockey world, what I found out uh, in recovery over the years, I got to meet Dan Cronin, who's kind of the head and the pivot between the two doctors that 
uh, run the NHL substance abuse program. Right. So even going back years ago, I had a couple of players that were playing um, in the league for the Sharks actually stay at my house. They reached out to you or they, no, through I, the through, doctors? No, through Dan Cronin yeah. just to, you know, have a guy, a mentor that has played, whatever. That's the way they looked at it. Yeah. Now, the, both these guys, <laughs> they they wanted nothing to do uh, with recovery, unfortunately. Um and and that's okay, you know. And that's obviously I mean, the, it, of the of the twelve. They were steps. out of the, they were out of the league, <laughs> right? Within a few, but one of them actually did come back. Get, uh, got in recovery and is today. So that's been for me a kind of a cool um, connection because through Dan, um, and he asked other guys, "Hey, you know, can I? You okay if I talk to you to Dave Maley and, and connect you?" So he's connected me with other guys, right? Um, and which was public, and I can say Kevin Stevens came and talked. Yeah, at very Minnes- public. Yeah, Minnesota Wild. I yeah. don't know if you have the, the, their recovery. I'm very familiar with it. Yeah, their recovery day. So I went to that this year, and went and talked to him, and got to meet the guys that kind of oversee that within the Wild. Yeah, which I thought you know is so cool. They're they're trying to help do that with other teams in the league and uh, sp- spread this recovery day within other organizations, uh, which I think is awesome. I mean, I think it's great. It's interesting that you talked about, yeah, these guys want nothing to do with it. What, what is the, the first step is something like just got to admit it, right? You have to hit somebody's – you got to hit a rock bottom, right? Yeah, I mean, I don't – I think everybody's different. Yeah. I think what I learned um, when I first started to go to meetings, it wasn't about how much I drank or used drugs. And that was a – you know, to me, quite frankly, I thought the guy with the brown bag and homeless guy, you know, those are the guys that, you know – fell into AA. Yeah. Um, when I learned more about uh, and read through the doctor's opinion in AA and uh, over the years, even more, I, I've read quite a bit more than just, you know, the big book, but um, the science around addiction, uh, I, I knew that, uh, and I, I could relate to it, right. with, you know, and the, the allergy that happens. Uh, um, so anyway, I, I think, I used to joke around. There are guys who used to joke around back in the day that knew that saying, oh, you know, if you just admit it, so we, you know, admit, oh, I got right. a problem. Oh, yeah, yeah. You yeah. know what I mean? Joke it's, around. It's more than the first. That's why it's just one of the 12 steps. It's not the only one, right? Yeah. I mean, and I think, you know, it's, I don't know. I, we could talk for a long time about uh, recovery. It's a uh, obviously a big passion of mine because it's it reminds me, not unlike a team, you know, that i uh, throwing on a jersey, uh, that's the way I look at the, my recovery team, if you want, if you will, because, y- you know, I'm I'm responsible to the guy that helped me when I first reached out my hand, right? And I'm forever, res- uh, and I'll never, I'm always responsible for the for the next person that reaches their hand out or 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 wants to know if I can help them, and um, that's just the way it works, right? So it's one person helping another. And, um, you know, you talked before this show, hey, what, you know, we were going over the board of what we talk about, and you had mentioned, hey, do you even want to talk about that? And I'm glad, you know, if we only talked about that, I would be, you know, I'd like that better than anything because, um, you know, it just hockey's given me a, has been my life, but when I really look at it, my recovery life is so much more a part of my life than anything else. Right. 
Right. Uh, well, I'm glad we got a chance to yeah, talk about it because there's, there's, there's a lot, you know, we've talked about some of the people that you've worked with, obviously anonymously, but it's, 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 it's refreshing that you've taken your platform and been able to take it to another level. Yeah. Sure. Um, one of the things I'm, I'm holding in my hand, a top shelf process, uh, targets. It's a, it's a metallic, uh, let's see if I can describe this right. This is something you would use as a training tool. You could uh, buy it by, um, what is that? Not metal, uh, magnets. Magnets, there you go. Yeah, I'm sorry, yes, that's short right. on words here today. Uh, magnetic shooting targets that you can put to a goal post, uh, in, in, in any goal post. Uh, is this your invention or are you, are you the inventor or the guy who thought it was a great invention was going to bring it to market? Which which are you? I'm a little bit of both. Okay. There, so there's. I know you have a partner. That's why I asked. Yeah, there's a. I'm on the patent. Uh, well, the patent that we're trying to get right now. Um, so, the very first idea of it how, uh, was a, a guy that I'd coached as a teenager, who's now in his early 30s, who worked for me at the time at the facility, the sports facility, which we had indoor roller hockey, indoor soccer, indoor lacrosse. Right. He was doing an indoor lacrosse camp, and none of the kids wanted to play goalie. And he just came up with this idea to cut a, a piece of plywood because we had shooter tutors, you know, the, right. uh, that, but they were too big for the, the lacrosse nets. Right. You know? So this is him telling me the story. He took our uh, name tags, magnets, from our, for our employee magnets, he just screwed them right into plywood, like six of them across a piece of plywood, and stuck it up on the on the the and cross. If you hit the target, it fell off. Yeah, yeah. I saw it in our uh, employee room and asked who did it because I took it right out to the right away. I went out to the hockey net and started shooting at it, and because it was a big piece of plywood, it made a big noise and it was cool. It was fun right. to do. Found out it was Robert, and I knew it wasn't in the marketplace. Talked to another guy attorney friend of mine did a patent search and then i went back to robert i actually have my brother-in-law or my nephew adam who's still working with us today he's an engineer went to cal poly had another company a couple businesses that he had started trash amps his little amps you can plug in the phones he uh had a laser printer and kind of did a almost exactly what you see there right there really in an excellent excellent I gave him sketches in an email from the target I told you about originally. Yep. Told him to put the magnets, embed the magnets in this, and he made it out of acrylic and brought it to me almost exactly like that. So it was a bit, you know, super crude idea was not mine. Right. Kid that worked for me, Robert. I helped really with the embedded part of the magnets and also those notches. Right. Um, And then the holes in the side. But it doesn't matter. It's a team, a team uh, process, and I asked Robert if he, you know, wanted to start a company. I put the money in, and you know, we got it to a certain point where we we got it, our initial targets made, and they were with a CZ, a big uh, saw machine, and then these are the second version, or we call it 2.0, where we got molds, molds made. It costs more money to make a mold but they can be made faster and everything else. So yeah, and we we sell we've been selling and Pure Hockey has been a huge uh, partner for us and we're blessed to have them as a partner and we sell on amazon.com and .ca in Canada along with Shields and a couple other stores. Uh I want to 
you you got you got right to the sale part of it. I want to get to how this actually got to market because I, I like I told you before the show I ran a marketing company before YHH, and we people would come to me with ideas like you make this like oh yeah no big deal we just got this done. It's a it's not an easy thing to get a patented product yeah. into production into manufacturing. At, at a at a price point that people will actually buy it, and then to get it to the market, like to Pure Hockey or to Amazon, yeah. this is not a process that's really easy. It's like each of those is a victory, almost like a, from a hockey perspective. Each 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 is a W, but then to actually get it to market and then have actually people continue to buy it is a true victory, and that, that makes you as big a winner than any of this other stuff, as far as I'm concerned. This well, product. Thank you. One of the things when we had lunch, she told me about is is in the in the process, the production processes is they would shatter, and you have to be at a point where they can get cold. If they get cold, they don't. Then they would break. Correct? Yeah, they didn't. No, they hadn't broke. Is that in version one and now? No, version they, they two? hadn't broke. But your your story is right. What happened was because you know this is I'd lived in San Jose since the early nineties, and so we I was testing them on my backyard, which. The coldest it ever gets. And with gets. your 63-mile-an-hour shot, you weren't going to break oh, anyway, right? <laughs> yeah. That's a really good point. 65, maybe. It's okay. I'm just kidding. You got me on the driver 8-iron earlier before we turned the yes, show on, so I had to get I you did. back. It was good. And in case you uh, people are listening want to know, I, I was talking about distances, and I said a driver, and but it'd be a driver and an 8-iron for you, <laughs> for Tony. That was a good one. That yeah. was a good one. I liked it. I'm going to use that, too. So, right. yeah, what happened was I just had one of those OF moments because I've been testing them in hot weather. So I froze them that night. I froze a bunch of them in my freezer, came out, put it on the goal, first shot, broke. So it was an, almost another year, another cal- eight months of, uh, you know, that's like our Coca-Cola, you know, the um, mixture. Of, right. We had to have some chemists come in and, and, and change the mixture so it could withstand high heats up to 110 and, and, and below zero. Right. And so that was a long process. It really was. I thought that was kind of cool. It's like, ugh, you're finally there, you're ready to go, and yeah. you can't even sell it because you know it because it could be, end up being defective. Yeah. Uh, and I, I think it's a huge win. Now let's get to the sale part of it. Uh, you have a six-inch, and is it a nine-inch? The Eight. other one? Eight-inch. Yeah, Six-inch, inch. nine-inch. So that's, so. Uh, lacrosse players, hockey players can attach these to their goalposts at home. Yeah, uh, they stay there and they get only knocked down with with the force of a shot. And That's then right. You can you could have contests. Some point uh, when YHH becomes you become a big advertiser in YHH. We're <laughs> going to go out to a rink, probably outdoors, and we'll have a contest. I'll win, of course, but because uh, it, it we I can. Uh, I can uh, make the videotape make me look oh, like a true. hero and yeah. make you look like a loser. No matter if you, no matter how well you do, I'm just kidding. Uh, but how can somebody find these? They're they're pretty cool. Well, that's nice of you to say that. I mean, we you can find them on our website, topshelftargets.com. Okay. We're actually doing a Black uh, Friday sale through the weekend, uh, but also online at Amazon.com um, or you know, if Pure is open, any Pure store uh, around here carries them. Okay, so you can find them at retail, you can yep. find them at Amazon, uh, and you can find them. They're all, all the same price, right? You don't get a discount if you buy it on your website. Yes, there, like are, there is a discount. That's what I'm saying. The, through a, uh, Directly, you can get a, just a little bit of a discount. Yeah, there's a couple of discounts out there. In fact, 
I'm kind of hoping you get your affiliate program I know. going. So we're you getting get, there. We're almost there. So you'll be able to pass on a, you know. We, we are definitely almost there. Yeah. That was not the purpose of this show. I, the, oh, the, it's the, okay. The, the triple crown was the real reason, and you're kind of a funny guy too. So uh, it's been a fun show getting so far. We're almost there. Yeah. You you are old. I wanted to talk to. <laughs> I, I, I I joked with you before the show. Like I, I did a podcast with Sammy Walker, who's twenty years old, and. Sammy's podcast took about 20 minutes because there's not much to it when you're 57. There's a lot to your story. And I wanted to just get to a few players that you played with um, and then some coaches. So um, before we do that, I want to just talk about, uh, because there aren't a lot of Edina guys on this five impactful players, but there were a lot of guys that we've talked to off air. Uh, You talked about Bill Brower, still a good friend of yours. Yeah. Um, And and Wally Chapman. Yeah. I said, who was the guy when you moved in? from uh, Wisconsin who became your first friend at the rink and you said Wally was the guy and that doesn't surprise me he saw your ability and he saw you're going to help and probably had a lot in common talk about those two guys well I think uh well yeah Wally was you know we didn't play together Bantams um but we we somehow we connected and I don't remember you know it was before I don't know actually what time it was but kind of the you know spend the night over right. kind of first guy and then it was funny because his dad's an orthodontist, and I ended up having to get braces put on my teeth again because I wouldn't wear this positioner thing. Yeah, retainer. Came, yeah, retainer. When I came, when I moved, I was like, I'm not wearing this damn retainer during school. Right. And then my teeth. You already dog, had the hush puppy shoes yeah, too. Was, you didn't crooked. need any more disadvantages with the ladies, right? <laughs> so yeah, and then Billy Brower. I think it was just we've we've stayed in contact. Both I have with both those guys on and off, um, probably. Most with Billy. Right. And um, you know how that goes. You just it takes two, you know, make, right. back and forth. But I've come back for a while there from 2002 or three to like 14, 15 with my dad. For the state attorney. For the state attorney. I kind of made it a father-son trip and had a blast. So that, uh, And then I'd see all the guys. And there's a, lo- a, a few other guys I've contacted and uh, said hello to since I've been here. Uh, Greg McCush, who owns Montgomery National Golf right. Course, it's been yeah, cool yeah, to go yeah, down yeah. there and see him. And uh, Brian Cutchell was my line mate. We played golf, and so it's been nice to kind of hook up with some guys you know I haven't seen in a long time or been around. Right. Okay, so let's talk about some of the the, the pro guys that you had connection with. Uh, the guy you put right at the top of your list was Bob Ganey, and you get a nickname for Bob Ganey. It's so funny, like you actually can give Bob Ganey a nickname. What, what's his nickname again? Oh no, he his nickname he just went. Oh, by, he's got a good name for you. Yeah, his yeah, nickname yeah. was Bo. Everyone called him Bo. Yeah, but but everyone called me either males. Yeah, that was it. Males. He called me May May and May for some reason. But you know what are you going to do? He's the captain of the team and. <laughs> I wasn't going to tell him to call me anything different, but he he had a, a young son, maybe 12, 12 year old, 13, 14 year old uh, son at the time. And my first week there, he's like, hey, you want to go watch a hockey game? And he drove me to watch his son play hockey. We had a coffee. I thought it was the coolest thing. Yeah. And he was the first guy on the ice every day of practice. First guy. He was 36 at the time. Yeah. You know? I don't know. You know that year we won the cup. I think it was his fifth cup. <laughs> Ho hum, right? Yeah, six. I don't know, um, but huge impact on me uh, from just a work ethic, uh, just his uh, connection with all the players off the ice too, and 
uh, just grateful to have been able to cross bass with him. Well, yeah, we got, both him and Larry Robinson on that list. A lot Same. of a lot of Hall of Famers on this list. I'm not yeah. sure if Kevin Lover made the Hall of Fame or not. He's, if not, he's darn close. Yeah, he did. He did. Okay, Pretty sure he did. Maybe I'm not sure. It's last year. I think he may have. Or he's on this year. Or he's coming up. Yeah. No, because he's 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 in because I saw a comment. Uh, his daughter or somebody and somebody either I can't remember now. He said this is better than HOF for him. Really? So yeah. Okay. I, I'm pretty sure I should know that. That I'm looking it up as we speak here. So just feel so, free to so, let's talk a little bit about Brendan Shanahan. You were at his Hall of Fame induction. Yeah, we lived together in Jersey. He was a bit younger than me, but we've stayed in contact. And, you know, I've been a huge fan of his throughout his career. And whenever he'd come to San Jose, we'd, we'd hang out, go out to dinner. And, um, you know, over the years, since he's got the job in Toronto, too, I, like I said, I went out there a couple of different times. And I was out as a Shark right. broadcaster a couple of times in 16 and 17. So, you know, got to see him. But he's one of those guys that I'm sure you have him. Um, and really the only guy on that list because I'm a lot closer to him. doesn't matter how much time that goes away. You know what I mean? It's, it's always the same. same you know, yeah. yeah. We're, and so, and that's like Billy Brower too, Wally Chapman. Um, time can kind of go by, but we've shared enough and gone through enough that we're close. That's you know pretty I mean? cool. Yeah, it is cool. Uh, his, this guy, Larry Robinson, he's had about as much impact on the game of hockey in my lifetime as any player and, and, and assistant coach and general manager. Yeah. He's done it all. Tell me a little bit about Larry. He's the most, like, he's a little kid all the time. That's really? what really struck me with him in Montreal. When I remember when I, when I was in, the, after the cup year, the next full year, Literally every game, I'd go after warm-ups because I was in every warm-up. This, the equipment guy, Sylvain Tupin, would come up and go, hey, man, you're not in. Not a coach, the equipment guy. <laughs> and it was like that. I scored a goal. I'll never forget it. It was the first game of the year. We lost to Toronto. I scored a goal. We lost 3-2. Next day, I was out of the lineup. So there was no rhyme or reason to, like, this group of four or five guys, rookies, yeah, whether we'd be in or out, there was just no rhyme or reason to it. That's just the way it went, and I was pissed. I remember skating around, just scowl on my face. Just it was after a game I hadn't played, and Larry comes up, and he always just seemed lighthearted, fun, like it's the you know best time ever. He's like, "Malesy, what's going on? Why you I'm skating around?" He came right up to me, and he said to me, and I'll never forget it. Although I didn't heed the call as much as I should have. He said, if you're not having fun, you might, there's a door. You might as well go now. What great advice. Yep. He said, if you're not having fun, you might as well go. There's a door. So, yeah, and those are the kind of guys I, I really I got closer to, like Kirk Muller's on that list too. Larry was, he loved to joke around. I love to joke around. I mean, who doesn't? Yeah. But right. I really like to joke around. And, uh and be around guys with that light humor, and because I like it, it makes me, you know, feel yeah. better. Just you know, feel, it feels good giving other guys a hard time. That's right. You know what I mean? Yeah. No, I'm kidding. But Larry was like that. He he was always like a little kid, and just so fascinated with as a coach. Even talking to him as a coach, as a scout, he always had that light in his eyes that this is the best gig Ever. going. Yeah, Ever. Yeah. 
You know, to be a part of hockey in any way, shape, or form, to be a part of a team, to throw that jersey on, whether that jersey is a suit and a tie, didn't matter for him. And that's so that's I'm how guessing he was. when he and Lemare were coaching together, Lemare was the bad cop and, and Larry was the good cop. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. Uh, all right. Kirk Muller, another fantastic hockey player. Yeah. Do it all. I mean, that guy could do it all. He could. Um, super underrated. Not in I my think, books. Um, when he was in Jersey, he he had a 92 or 93-point year at center, and then Schoenfeld came in and wanted him to play wing. Yeah. And he did. Without any – nothing. Like, I'll play, I'll do whatever you want. And so – you know, I, I don't know. I, I just love the guy. He's just the heart and soul of that team and a joker and has one of the best laughs ever. Really? And I think that's one thing about that team. He was our captain, and he was young, probably one of the youngest guys in the team at the time, but hardest working guy by far. And um, when I say that, I mean from start to end of every single shift, he gave – Everything he had, every shift. Oh, and it rubs off. Oh, know? yeah. And then when your best player plays like that, you hear it all the time, but when you get a chance to be around a guy like that, um, it's just crazy how positively it affects every single player. Right, right. And then lastly, Hockey Hall of Famer Kevin Lowe. He, yes, he is inducted in 2020. Yeah, this year. That's what yeah. I thought. So, yeah, and he was another guy, soft-spoken, but f- – Really, when I went to Edmonton, he asked me if I wanted to go, you know, on a trip to Banff during the, the lockout at that time. And, you know, he didn't have Twist to do your arm, that. right? Yeah. I mean, he didn't have, have to do that. a condo there, you know, and it was just awesome. Um, you know, so I think it's those kind of things that reminds me of the, uh, the saying in the Montreal uh, locker room to these failing you know hands we pass the torch to the to hold on high it's around the top of the locker room yeah and i think those teams with that back in the day with those that type of history of winning and i got to edmonton when you know gretzky was gone so they had won the cups you know and everything else but craig mctavish is there and kevin Lowe is really the the, the guy that's been there the long, right? longest so yeah. he really um reminded me a lot of of how Bob Ganey and Larry Robinson handled themselves. Everybody was the same. He reached out to all the young guys, take them under his wing, take them out to dinner. Just awesome. Just awesome. So he, he was fun to be able to play with and, uh, and that Oiler team. And we, we upset some teams too with Billy Ranford and that we ended up going to the semis when uh, Bernie Nichols, Joe Murphy and yeah, Vinnie Danfors were, a line and they were phenomenal line um but yeah all right uh we're off the uh player grid let's go to some coaches you've had some great ones uh but the one that do you keep coming back to this guy over and over and over and i'd like to hear more about him because it's not a not a household name like bob o'connor or eichola or even like john cuniff uh it's Grant Standbrook, he was yep. the assistant at the University of Wisconsin. He took a liking to you when you were at Edina. Um, he was one of the key reasons. And no, no offense to Jeff Sauer, the late Jeff Sauer, but you say he was the engine behind uh, a lot of these great Wisconsin teams. Well, I think he was the engine behind, you know, as soon as he came in in the late or mid-70s, like 74 or 5, he did all the recruiting. He did right. all the recruiting. 
So if you Think look about at the players that he found from seventy-five to eighty-five, it's yes. Well, then he went to Maine, right? And he, you know, did the same that, thing there. That program into a, a NCAA championship team. So he he was all about the little things. I still talk to him. He's you know seventy-seven, really seventy-eight, maybe. He's up there and sharp as a tack. He's down in Florida. His wife, unfortunately, is ill, but he is so cool. He he. I mean, he's a, reminds me a lot of Ike in his photographic type of memory of players where they're now, and um, you know, texting me while we're talking, contacts. You know, really, yeah. Do you know this guy? He's here. He scouts. You know, I'm going to send your contact while he's shopping, talking to me, and sending. That's. I hope I can do that in my 70s. Yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> I mean, I'm hoping that if I just think stuff, it'll go. I don't have right. to type it. Right. Might have all. to. Might have to. Yeah. So. He's been, and I, and I worked as hockey camps when I, as a job uh, after my freshman, sophomore, uh, and junior year. So I just, he's like my guru, you know. And then he introduced me again to his son, Todd Stanbrook, who lives out on Chaska Town Course. Really? Yes. And Todd <laughs> introduced me, and he's a golf nut, so I got the chance to play Tee It Up every Sunday morning from, like, middle of July through the summer with Todd and What's he do for a living? Is he in hockey? He's a or? Cargill. Okay, so he's like just a regular a guy. Huh? Cargill, huh? Yeah. Just a regular guy, huh? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's pretty cool. That's pretty cool. All right, uh, we talk a little bit Bob O'Connor. What makes Bob O'Connor so special? Well, the late Bob Connor, yeah, yeah. he, he uh, his enthusiasm. He's got a Boston accent, and he just was like a little kid, too, a lot like Larry. Just his enthusiasm about the game. He even called, he, he even said that a lot. You got to have enthusiasms, plural. <laughs> and and then a little intricacy, you know, like two hands on your stick. And because he was my JV coach, and so I learned a lot about you know technical ways to hold the puck or hold the stick. And um, you know, so I just loved his passion. That was the biggest thing about Bobby. And he had a he had a skate sharpener at the rink. I mean, uh, at the locker room inside Edina. So we had to go in Edina, big cage lockers in the actual gym cl- uh, room, right? Mm-hmm. Put, all our, put all our gear on and put our skates on our stick, wear our helmet, go out in the bus. Right. Then we'd bust down to Braemar, put our skates on, and then we'd come back with our sweaty stuff on. Stuff, yeah. take it out, take a shower. He had, a, he, had a, he had made a little skate shop, and every day... He would, well, at least every other day, he, he in his Boston accent, he'd, go, he, he'd say it really loud for everyone. He goes, the butcher shop is now open, <laughs> featuring ground round, or something like that. But he'd say the butcher shop is open. And, you know, so he just made it fun. And I think what a great, he was such a great JV coach because he didn't care about coaching varsity. You know what I mean? Guys yeah. that maybe wanted to pursue that route he loved coaching you know kids at that age um or young men what was his profession you know i don't think he had a profession i know his uh, wife came from a a very wealthy family okay up in duluth and uh he did not teach he just coached oh that's cool yeah he didn't he didn't have any uh specific job so he had a lot of fun yeah, a lot of fun. A lot of fun doing it. Uh, we got talk. We've talked a lot about Ike so far. Uh, you you got a takeaway. You've talked about his photographic memory, his rigid, hard 
Noah's system. What are some things that uh, you you know you said you talked to him now that he's you've gotten more out of him now and that he's later later on in the years. What are some of the things you take away where he, what he's doing now? Well, you know, he's uh, as far as what he's doing now, it's kind of hard when you talk to Ike. You might ask him one question, like what he just turns it around. Really? It's funny. Yeah, he'll turn it around into you know. You don't get a lot out of him. I, about himself, Yes, right? about okay. himself. It's hard Next to, thing you know, he's talking about you in the yes. third period of the Jefferson game. Or some other thing. Right. right? He just doesn't. But I've heard more at the the Eichler Cup, which Udina yeah. has had for a number of years, at Bear Path to raise money for the Udina Hockey Association. He's spoken at that a number of times, and I love him. I mean, I, I wish I – I'm hoping guys have recorded that because – you know, he tells stories, some of which I haven't heard. Right. I mean, you could sit down and talk. You know, he could tell stories all day long. Right. Right. And this book, the the Tourney Time book, there's a lot of – he they, Lauren and David, got a lot of really good gems out of Eichel in the book. Yeah. Because every – the book is the, a story of each state champion, so there were a lot of state championships for him to, to yeah. talk about. Yeah, no, I've, I've, I've seen the book. It's good. It's good. All right, Teddy Green. I just put him down. You mentioned the most impactful coaches. He was a former player. Um, just love his passion. Again, I mean, all these guys in this list, uh, as far as the coaches are concerned, um, and he was a phenomenal bench coach. And he so, could see things. He could see uh, without analytics. He could he could see things yes. that their team were doing. Or he just put guys in that were playing, and he play guys that were playing. I think in the NHL, you know, you've got. You know, you might be able to play, they have stats on it, but, you know, maybe 60 games at 85 to 90%. Yeah. The rest of them, you're probably at 70 to 75%. I mean, I don't think you're ever 100%. No. So he just found a way, especially for the third, fourth line guys, I love the way he he would see guys, there, you know, that had the jump early and he'd put them in and keep playing them. And I think that therein lies the biggest challenge for NHL coaches today, which I really don't – I don't like coaches that play the percentages and play the guys with the stats and everything else. Right. I am uh, a big fan of the guys that play guys that are going. I'm Scotty Bowman, I'm a big fan. I mean, he didn't care if you're – you know, he didn't care. You're Fedorov, Shanahan. You, you, yeah. He would bench him. He did. And yeah. I love that because it sends a message. You're going to play my way. You're going to play the right way. And I think most of those great coaches, they they're for, you know they formulated like Ike. He was all about defense first. Right. Well, he was a goalie. Yeah. You know, but he also thought if you had the puck all the time, you better be good at it too, right? So the best defense is having the puck all the time. So he was a big – he liked the openness of it too and the flow. So – but Teddy Green was a great bench coach. And then the last one I have, John, the late John Cunniff, loved, loved him. Just – Loved his practices, loved his energy, uh, loved his communication. And I think Teddy Green, I'll go back to him, he was he communicated better than any any NHL coach I'd ever had. And I say that because most NHL coaches wouldn't talk to you much. They just At don't. All. No. And, you know, sometimes it was assistant coach, but I think, still think there's a real lack of that just one-on-one conversation with a player and a coach and what – you expect of them and how they're doing now and everything else. Um, but, you know, it just gets thrown by the wayside. I think they think, well, 
you know, these guys got all this technology. They get to see the iPads. They get shifts on the, you know, they on the bench. They get little iPads on their, in their gloves. They're sitting there holding an iPad yeah. with their gloves. It's the strangest thing. Yeah, and I think, but I think oh, what a lot's missing, and I think it's the same way in society. It's just like one-on-one. Yeah, it's way better. And um, walking through things, talking about what you're struggling with, not just about the game. I mean, they get to that level. I personally believe that the difference between the elite players and the ones that aren't the elite players or the, the guys that go from good to great are doing all the other things outside of the game to right. make them better. Yeah, that's true. All right, so it, we've talked about the uh, top-shelf targets, but another th- occupation of yours um, is coaching. You were an assistant coach at Holy Family. Uh, this will be your second year there, correct? Yeah. Um, What's what's it take to be a good coach? I mean, you've talked a little bit about here. If if, if yeah. when you're coaching in Holy Family and you got uh, seventeen, eighteen year old kids uh, on your bench, what, what what do you see your role? What, what what can you hand to those kids when someone's coming to Holy Family? Well, I I don't. I think just um, first of all, it's been a blast being a high school coach in the state of Minnesota. It really has been being on the ice every day is a is a blessing and a gift. Uh, kids that go to that school, I mean, it's a private school. You know they want to play. Right. They want to play beyond high school. They have dreams of playing beyond high school. So right away it sets it up. It's a good environment. Right. Because right. you know these kids. But in every on every team, it doesn't matter. I don't think I've ever been on any team or had a team or coached a team where there wasn't two or three guys, whether it's squirt or all the way through pro, that are little mini coaches. Yeah. Right. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I remember having a guy uh, in squirt, uh, an O2 as a squirt, being a coach for a squirt. He was like an assistant coach. Yeah. Don't don't put this guy out. Don't put that guy out. <laughs> oh, really? Oh, yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. In fact, he's, play, he's playing now in, uh, in uh, I think, the um, is it NIHA or no? NHL? Yeah, NHL. He really? Just got, yeah. Jake Muir is his name. I had a girl last fall. I was coach got thrown on a bench because the coach couldn't make it, and I coached the first game. And they, are you going to coach the rest of these games? I'm like, yeah, <laughs> for sure, for sure, I'm going to coach. So I coached. I stuck with it. And there was this girl on the team. She was the coach. I mean, she yeah. was barking and she's pointing. And I'm like, you know, young lady, you are going to be a coach. Someday. Of course, and I don't have to do anything. I'm just standing here and just let you take the reins from here on out. It's the best when that happens. Yeah, and I think it's like anything. I love. Uh, I think the one thing I love the most from coaching and, you know, training people and even in like in the recovery world is seeing the light go on, right. you know, in, the, in, a, in a player's eyes and seeing them get it and feeling that they've accomplished something and, and then moving on to the next challenge. I love that part of, you know, seeing a, a player grow. Yeah. Well, last segment, we call it uh, If You Could, and we've uh, set you up for this one, all right? So uh, you've been in hockey f- uh, from the youth level to high school level, pro, all the way up. Um, if you could change one rule in hockey, uh, what rule? It doesn't matter what. It could be squirts. It could be pros, whatever. You can get to change one rule. David Maley, you're on the clock. Okay, I don't know. I was thinking about that a lot. We talked about the first thing I said was flipping the puck out, delay yeah. a game. But the puck more over, puck, yeah, over glass. puck over glass. Uh, but they'd have to, you know, f- chop that up into. I think we talked a little bit about it because I thought, well, okay, if it's tied game, 
then yes. One goal or less. One yeah. goal or less. Or have some, you know, have some other rules on it. If it's four nothing and it's a yeah, no, I agree. You know, don't stop the game. But I do want to talk about the one the icing because it bothers the absolute, you know what I because I don't think there's ever like what's the rule? If the guy beats the guy by the hash mark before he gets to the I mean, it's <laughs> is it to the hash marks? It's or hash not? mark, yeah, yeah. It's hash mark. But it's not. No, I'll, you know, I'll sit there and rewind games on icings and just go, okay, <laughs> frame, frame, frame. How in the world is that not icing because the guy beat him? Yeah. So they call it. It's a hard call okay, to make. Okay, so why not automatic? What? And then have something on it. I mean, I'm talking about the pro level. I'm not talking about, I don't even, I haven't been to youth game in youth a while. Youth now, bantam and younger, you can't ice it, Period. No, what I'm saying is automatic, if it is iced, automatic whistle no matter what. what? Why yes. chase it down? Yes. What's the use? These guys are making too much money. If I was a GM, I'd go, dude, you think I want some, you think I want, uh, you know, my best player, I'm paying seven, eight million a year defenseman boards. to go, go into a puck when, you know, Oveshkin's coming down a million miles an hour. If it's a clear, I mean, if it's icing, why can't they, why can't they just, Automatic. Oh, dead. Yeah. yeah. And then maybe have a penalty. I don't know. What could you add to that? If you they can. do it more than like an automatic delay a game after. Yeah. So many three. icings. Yeah. Yeah. Three we've icings. iced it five times. It's yes. delay a game. Delay a game. Be, hey, we have, we've solved yes. icing. There we've you go. Solved it. There you go. We've, do, we've done one thing right <laughs> in an hour and 44 minutes. We've solved the has icing it been crisis. That long? It has that, been an what... hour and 44 minutes. Wow. 90 is usually the limit, but the older guys like yourself. <laughs> oh, here we go. <laughs> Gets a little bit longer, you know. But uh, that ought to wrap it up, unless you got something else. I mean, no, that's I, it. I'm good. Thank I you had for a, having me. I had a blast doing this. Um, got to remind our people out there who are listening to this, if they want to put a dent in their Christmas list this weekend and take home a free hat at the Minnesotan, do so. It's spending $100 or more, you get a free hat. And these aren't just, like, lame hats. These are, like, legit $30, $40 hats. You're going to get a nice prize if you buy over $100 stuff from the Minnesotan. Check them out. I'll have a link on our podcast. I also have a link to the uh, top shelf targets as well, so you can check that out as well. Thanks again for David Maley joining us today on today's show. Hope you have a wonderful Black Friday and have a great weekend.